You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. So this morning, Father Paul, we wanted to talk about this word hevel, which is interesting because it's translated in Ecclesiastes often as vanity. It's also the name of the well-known character from Genesis, Abel. But the word itself requires some discussion and explanation and how it fits in the context of the biblical story. Thank you for asking me to speak about this, because this is the heart of Scripture in its entirety. You just mentioned that Hebel is way at the end in the Ketubim and way at the beginning. Let's take the bull by the horns directly. Adam is the being that comes from the Adama, from the ground. And God reminded him in chapter 3 that he is dust, which is below the level of the ground. The dust are the particles of the ground that disappear, and they are strewn all over the place, and thus they are thrown into oblivion in existence. This continues in chapter 4 of Genesis, where right from the beginning we have two sons, and thus two kinds of people. Interestingly, this Hebel does not have a story. You cannot say anything about Hebel except he was a shepherd and he was killed, period. A passing breath, whereas Cain is from a verb that means acquire, to have something, to possess, and this is reflected in the fact that he built a city and he had a genealogy, a Toledot. Hebel did not have anything. He totally disappears. He needed his mother to conceive another child in his stead. And this is right from the beginning against the greatness of the accomplishments of the human beings as reflected in not only the civilization of Alexander of Macedon, who came to subjugate Mesopotamia, but way before him in the culture of Mesopotamia itself. One of the uniquenesses of scripture is that it slams first the writers and also the others. That's the proposition of the Bible, not that it exists. It doesn't exist, because as a human being, you have to produce, you have to do something, you have to work to earn your living. And yet, the Bible is presenting as a prototype someone who comparatively does not work, a shepherd. All he has to do is to take care of his flock, because he receives the milk and the meat and the wool from the flock. He does not work anything. He does not need even to plant a garden because the garden is already there in the oasis. And thus this Hebel is very important. I remember in the classroom when I said to the students that Caleb means dog, one of the students whose name was Caleb, you mean my name means dog? I said, yes, I can't help you. But thank your angels that your name is not Abel, (laughs) which is worse. And let me say this, coming from Arabic culture, you have it in Habal. Habil means stupid. In other words, someone who has nothing in his brain. 
And the parallel, which is very important, and I realize not too many people remember that immediately. Obviously, when I bring it up, they refer to it. They understand what I'm saying. In Arabic, we have a specific word for emitting steam. Let's say you have a water boiling. We have a word for boiling. But then we have another word, which also we have in English, when this boiling produces steam, where something you can see, you can touch like the water, the liquid is transformed into gas. We say bihabbil, habbal, which means that it is in the language itself where the habbal means you are like esteem you pass into nothing. And thus, the best translation, if we can speak of a correct translation or best, is a passing breath. And thus, the translation into Matiotis and Vanitas in Latin is also clear. Vain is something empty. It's not that there is something. There is nothing, which is a contradiction in terms. <laughs> and thus, emptiness. But you speak of it and you can even see the steam as you can see the dust. But it is unto oblivion, unto destruction. Now, the importance of that lies in that the parallel word referring to the human being is nafish. And here again, I have to attack Plato, you know, out of something that is a passing breath, which is nafish. He made an eternal ego. I mean, it's unbelievable. But for me, it's not unbelievable how and why we all joined his bandwagon, because it gives us an eternal value. Can you imagine telling someone who is seven years old, you are as valuable as your grandfather. You are someone, something. This is not what the Bible is saying. And attacking Plato, I hope that my readers will hear me again saying that I'm attacking theology because theology is philosophy injected with the religion. Remember, Origen lived at the same time as Plotinus who pushed the teaching of Plato by making out of it a religion, the relation with the one, and so on and so forth. But this is not scripture. Scripture is belittling you to the extreme, technically annihilating you. I remember the classic father confessors in Eastern Orthodoxy in the Orthodox countries. The first thing, and I had to go through that, the first meeting, the spiritual father at the end of the confession tells you for the next month you're going to read every day Ecclesiastes, period. The author went around looking about this and that and that and that and that and that. Everything is vanity except at the end of the book where he says the only thing that is not vanity is abiding by the commandments of God by the law. It means that ultimately you can only be a sheep in scripture. You cannot be a shepherd. There is only one shepherd. And the sheep are by definition dumb. So let the Orthodox eliminate from their baptismal rubrics that you have joined this son or daughter as a logical sheep, reasonable sheep. Have you ever met a reasonable sheep? A reasonable sheep is unto destruction. <laughs> <laughs> because that sheep is going to decide to go his or her way. 
and it's gone. Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was one of the earliest cities where you had wisdom, teaching, buildings. And Abraham was asked to leave his father already. Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Solomon, the man who was visited by many rulers because of his wisdom. Well, he could not build his temple without Hiram of Tyre. In other words, he needed to build a temple. You have to get the help of someone who knows how to build a temple. Then, just to cover basic texts, the confession of the Israelite is that my father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, from Aram, there is no Judea. And wandering, as I explained in my book, the Hebrew is obed, unto destruction, unto oblivion. So wandering is very tricky because for a Western ear, oh, I wandered. In other words, I went and I came back. No, if you wander on your own, you're done. You have to move in the desert under the leadership of the shepherd who alone knows where the oasis are. Then let's push further than that. In Ezekiel, twice in chapter 16, I am from the land of Canaan. My father is an Amorite and my mother is a Hittite. It's unbelievable. In other words, you have no ID. You come from somewhere and then God gave you a scriptural ID. It's not an ID like all the others. Because already from the beginning, the plan was to destroy it. Let's remember Samuel 8. The people wanted a king. Samuel told them, you may not be like the other nations. Only God is your king. They fought against him. And at the end, it is God who told him, Sam, Sam, don't lose your breath. Use my breath. Let them have what they want to have, and I'll show them in a few centuries. If that is not impressive, then what is? But our theology counteracted all that. I mean, especially we, the Orthodox, when I go to the services, we are praising our own theology. We're not praising God. If you want to praise God, just pray the Psalms, because according to scriptural tradition, he wrote them, in other words, is under his inspiration. But when you start expressing all your hymns, telling me what God is and the Trinity and the eternity and the incarnation, and you repeat it, you repeat it, you repeat it at each service, you're praising your intellectual stones. You're not praising God. Another example, which is very impressive, I referred to it earlier, but, you know, repetition is very important. In the first movement of Abram and Sarai was for him to go down to Egypt. Already in chapter 12, in Egypt where Sarai, were it not for the intervention of God, would have been eliminated. Eliminated meaning would have become the wife or the concubine of Pharaoh. In other words, her children would not have been the scriptural children from Sarah and Abraham. They would have been Egyptians. But this does not contradict what scripture had said that our father is an Amorite, our mother is a Hittite, we are from Canaan, we are from Egypt, we are from Aram. So the scriptural individual cannot be like Cain. Let's go back 
to where we started. Cain has a huge genealogy and then he's eliminated, eliminated. His name is not to be found in the Toledot of Adam, except, as I explain in the book, obliquely just to salvage somehow under Canaan. Both names are from the same root in Hebrew. But Abel is all there, but again, according to the meaning of his name. As Hebel, he disappears, and in his place, God begins a new seed, and we should talk about that one day. It's not a child, as RSV translates it. It's a new seed, and in the book, I show my readers that this promise of the seed of the woman in chapter 3 is already realized in chapter 4. You don't need to wait until Jesus Christ. Only the theologians like it to be that way. That's the new seed instead of Hebel. And the name of Seth is posited, put for good. It is God who does that. And also in the book I show that this Seth does not come from Adam. It comes from Eve and God the way Cain came. But this remains because when you move to chapter 5, the first son of Adam, who was born in the likeness of Adam, was Seth. But Seth is bound to disappear as another Abel. So that, I'm convinced, is something we have to keep pointing to and teaching. Just read scripture and explain the Hebrew words, period. You don't need to explain the story because the story is clear. The theologians like to complicate the matter so that you could come to them. It's like the psychologists. They charge you for you going there and telling them what they keep asking you to tell them. And the priests do the same thing. They propagate a teaching. Priests and theologians are essentially in my book, and I'm one of them, people who need to be needed. Now, you, Father Mark, if Karima knows how to solve the problem in her book of math, she wouldn't come to you. So to impress her, you tell her and you come with a more complex problem that you can solve and she cannot. And then thank you, Dad, and so on. So I would like to finish on this tone. If you want to revisit, I'll be willing to revisit because that's what scripture is all about. It begins with Abel and it ends in the Ketubim with Ecclesiastes, that all is vanity except the law of God, which is, according to Jeremiah, expressed in his voice. Remember chapter 7 in the wilderness, I did not ask you to do this and do that and do this sacrifice that. I asked you to obey my voice. It's hard. It's hard to communicate this nowadays because every one of us take the Christians, you know. What's your ID? You have to say, I'm a Methodist, I'm an Orthodox, I am a Baptist, I am a Roman Catholic. You know, you're looking always for ID. And the only one who has an ID in Scripture is the one shepherd, the king of Israel. In thinking about this, I'm thinking of analogies with the New Testament, where we have Jesus who is killed and is put in the tomb, and when the disciples come back, it's empty, as if Jesus simply disappeared. Or in Acts, when Jesus goes up into the clouds and disappears from the sight of the disciples. Is there an analogy with this puff of steam that goes up and then disappears, and the way that Jesus, who also is killed like Abel, disappears into the sky, into the air. 
Well, we Americans like to answer yes and no. But I'm going to be nice to you and tell you yes, but you have to arrive to that conclusion through Scripture itself. The residence of God is the cloud. The cloud, what is the cloud? A steam of water. You know, you can see it while driving after half an hour. You look through the window, it's not there anymore. It's passing. So the choice of the cloud, you see how now we move to another topic, but they are interrelated. I stress it's another topic because the cloud is always on high, whereas the dust of the earth is totally destroyed on the face of the ground. So there is a difference. But what you said is correct in the sense that should God decide to rematerialize you, he and only he, because he raised Jesus, Jesus did not raise himself up as many of us teach. No, he was raised by God into another kind of steam, which is the eternal cloud of God. And that is why more than once you've heard me say it is incorrect to teach that Jesus was raised back to life. No, the girl was raised back to life. The son of the widow was raised back to life. Lazarus was raised back to life. To die again. But Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 6, was raised not to die again. And thus he was raised into power seated at the right hand of God. Obviously, you cannot take a picture of that. Only the Orthodox iconographers who need to make their living from selling icons to people tell them, let me paint to you, whatever. You're not painting, you're just copying scripture. So my answer to your point is definitely yes, so long as you accept the footnote I added. It's not the same thing. It's a new intervention, similar, and here let me go back, because I've been studying Genesis 1 through 11 for over three years. The phraseology is amazing. Let me go into that quickly now, that the Septuagint, the Vulgate, the Jerusalem Bible, and the KJV, you know what stuns me with the RSV, that very often it changes its parent translation which is the KJV, for heaven's sake. The KJV says, another seed. Seed, the word is seed. And thus you realize that the promise of God in chapter 3 took shape into the one who took the place of Habel. And thus you have already the story of the New Testament Jesus. You have a Habel that disappeared as a steam and reappeared in Seth as a new seed that produced the Toledot culminating in Noah, who is the father of all the three sons and through them of all the nations. And Cain is nowhere to be found. Let me repeat, at the beginning of the story, you don't need to know the original Hebrew, just by hearing the story, that chapter 4 is about Cain. It cannot be about Abel. Abel is like the actor who is killed at the beginning of a TV show of Chicago PD. Gone. And the rest of the chapter is how to deal with the murderer. So the real topic, the one who has an ego in chapter 4, the subject, is Cain. But then, interestingly, 
he disappears, although his great-grandson becomes Lamech the Malik the king with two wives. And two verses later, it is someone who was born as another seed, not another child, is Seth. It is only in this sense that I would move to speak about Jesus Christ, and not as in theology, especially Alexandrian theology, which controls everything. Jesus is to be found not only in every story, but in every verse of the Old Testament. He is Jesus, he is Jesus, he is Jesus. No, you can't do that. You have to follow the story. And in my book, I discuss the fact that both names of Jesus, Jesus and the Christ, are functional, scriptural. They have a meaning. They are not names like you named him like that. And you have this reflected in Matthew. You will call his name Jesus because you have the explanation of words. But enough is enough. Thanks very much, Father Paul. This was, as always, a very helpful discussion of an important term, an important concept, an important function of the Bible. And we really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. I mean, you're giving me an opportunity to say things to a larger audience, (laughs) because I don't know how many people will be willing to read my book. But at least here, you know, you can listen to it in the car. And uh, let us hope, let us hope that your work, which is not mine, but yours, all these podcasts, would be a new seed, not another podcast a new seed that would transform really the hearers. You honor us by using us as the vehicle for this teaching. Well, it takes me off the hook. (laughs) (laughs) I'm closer to the day of judgment than you are. May the Lord delay the day of judgment. Thank you very much. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's our hope. Amen. 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 We'll keep at it. Take care. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.